0: We really have a special uh, treat today. Not only do we get a chance to uh, talk to the local judges, but we always have an opportunity to talk with people that... ...are involved with broadcasting around this country. I tell you, you know what, you can take the girl out of Detroit, but you can't take Detroit out of the girl, even if she wasn't born here. Celeste Headley is co-host of Public Radio's The Takeaway, which I personally love, which comes to us weekdays on WDET here in Detroit. She's over. She has over an, a decade of experience both in Detroit and on national public radio throughout the country. Most recently, she was Midwest correspondent for NPR's Day to Day, covering everything from the auto industry to uh, to toilet smuggling. She was a Detroit reporter from 2001 to 2006, and a local morning edition anchor at public radio in beautiful Flagstaff, Arizona. She has multiple awards from Michigan chapters of Associated Press and Associated Broadcasting. But don't let Miss Headley just talk to you; she can sing as well, and has performed a classically trained soprano at the gorgeous Michigan Opera Theater and recitals across this great land of ours. Miss Headley earned her bachelor's from Northern University. And a master's from Goldblum University of Michigan, Celeste. I am really extremely honored to have you to the show. Welcome.
1: Well, it's my pleasure.
0: One of the uh, things I know you're in Detroit here uh, for a couple of issues, but one was the sourcing through texting summit that we just had, and trying to use ordinary citizens for local information. Tell us how that went, and do you think it? uh, Do you think it's an effective way for journalists around the country to use uh, local sources?
1: better than expected although we didn't get you know we ended up only getting you know a a small number of texts we didn't expect that many um when you're going out on the street and saying hi i'm a reporter text me (laughs) um but i mean you know as as a reporter it's it's really difficult to get um authentic sources out in the communities if they're not listening to you well that's you can you can say call us or write in as much as you want, but if they're not listening, you're not going to be able to get in touch with them. So this is just kind of a new idea to kind of get out there on the streets ourselves and um, approach them and say, hey, look, here's a number. You have your cell phone with you all the time. People are texting all the time. Text us if something's going on in the community or if you have a view to share. So I, I actually do think it has real potential to get people connected uh, to their own media organizations.
0: Um, well, you know- and we'll see how it goes. One of the uh, things they do locally here in uh, the Detroit area, they have the text code for uh, Crime Stoppers too, where they'll have billboards that if you see a crime or if you want to uh, report something, they have a specific code you can text and it anonymously will uh, bring a police officer to that area.
1: Right, right. I- I don't know what the numbers are. I'd be fascinated to see how that works, whether people actually save that number in their phone or not. Because, you know, it'd have to be something where in the moment... You could remember it, or it was already saved to your phone. You know what I mean, right? So that's kind of the challenge. Is is the same for us? Is that they need to have? We'd have to convince them to have that somehow saved in their phone.
0: I know so. that. Uh, I know that you were also recently in Detroit covering it for the Takeaway, which, I, like I said, I listen to it every morning, and I love the. I love it, by the way, with John Hockenberry. But Thanks. you covered it. You covered a piece that Dateline had done with Chris Hansen for MSNBC, and I know that. Listen, I know that you said that Detroit is your one of your favorite uh, favorite cities in the world. And it's I'm wondering, my
1: favorite, Be number one.
0: Well, that's good. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. And I'm wondering what you thought of the way he depicted Detroit, and if it left out the best parts of the city.
1: You know, I, just as anybody, everyone else who loves the city has said, you know, it's really it's really unfortunate when people choose to show. Um, only the challenges in the city you know and I was saying to the people here that to try and help them understand I said you know imagine if a film crew came to New York and filmed every single slum every homeless person out on the street and that's it and then left in new york you can imagine how that would look on film new york would look like a garbage pile right if you filmed only the bad parts of the city and that's what not what new york is um... and i said to john hawkenberry you know what if someone is writing a biography about you and all they did was talk about everything you would ever done that was mean well it may be factually accurate but it's not a true picture of you as a person. And that's that's kind of was my response. And, it's, you know, I'm not trying to pick on Dateline. This is kind of a, a familiar, for those of us who care about the city, this is familiar to us. This is what a lot of people do. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm not questioning motives. A lot of times, maybe they feel like they're they're pointing out things that are wrong that could possibly help the city in the end. The city definitely has a lot of challenges. This is a long way to go, but it's not a true picture of the city, and I don't think it helps.
0: Do you feel I don't when- think
1: it helps to show only the bad sides of Detroit, which are there in any urban community, and none of the wonderful stuff that's going on in the beautiful areas.
0: Do you ever get, uh, when you do stories like that, do you ever get complaints that you've left out parts of the story and want to go back and redo it so you can show it a little in a different light?
1: I mean, I that hasn't been true about Detroit, but it's definitely been true. And, you know, when I've been covering stuff for any national media, for NPR... Um there's always people who complain and say, look, you, you could have said this, you could have said that. Um, and, and it's, it's definitely true and it's, it's, as you, as you know, I'm sure full well, when you're on limited time, there's only so much you can get in there. You try to do the most, the fullest, most, uh, just portrait you can in the four or five, six minutes that you have. Um, you know, and that's a hard job.
0: Right. But you- you, you, asked, know, you
1: do the best you can
0: one of the questions you asked was what is great about your hometown and I know that's one of the things you're looking at what what is your hometown
1: my hometown is actually Mission Viejo California in Orange County.
0: What is great about that hometown what would you tell people in a piece about that uh,
1: is a beautiful little gem of a city i mean it's a, it's a relatively typical suburban town um but i i mean i have to say i got a fantastic education there they they definitely value education they spend a lot of money on their public education system and and probably that's one of the best things certainly you know i left at age 18 so probably the education is most of what i knew about there but you know they have they have a very very strong school system in my hometown that's for sure
0: you know one of the things that uh and you, you talking about going back to what chris hansen was how they were describing detroit he he described it as ground zero for the recession and what i liked about your piece is that you you showed more positive aspects of the city your interview for instance with that toby barlow um, Mm -hmm. where you saw signs and he saw signs in detroit what did you what was your feeling about how you think art or now with the film industry um coming here how do you think that's going to help the automotive industry or the automotive state
1: only be good for the automotive industry if they are not uh, the sole support of this region. If they don't. I don't think they want to be that either, <laughs> because that puts so much pressure on them and it puts so much of the spotlight on them anytime they make any kind of business decisions. So I think that as we move forward and as we move away from having. The auto industry as, you know, the number one industry in Metro Detroit, it's going to be fantastic not just for Detroit and the metro area but for the auto industry as well That it's going to diversify I mean the film industry it's been coming up for a while you know I've been watching it since I got here in in 2001 and just marveling at how quickly it's grown Um, but it's not just the film industry there's lots of industries here that are doing quite well the furniture industry has been doing okay um, throughout the recession Um, there's lots of things going on here uh, that have nothing to do with manufacturing. And I think this is a chance for manufacturing to take a breather, and it's a chance for these other industries to finally get some of the attention that they deserve. You know, one of the things that we noticed when we came out here is my staff was amazed at, at the incredible... Uh, restaurants in Detroit. They didn't want to leave. So, um, you know, some of these things that people don't understand or maybe don't appreciate, I mean, even among Detroiters, there's this tendency to think that if it's in Detroit, it must not be good. I don't think even Detroiters truly appreciate the incredible quality of your own symphony and your own art museum and the zoo. I mean, I don't think people even realize Compared with other cities, how high quality the culture is in this city—it's
0: amazing. Well, it's so, it's definitely one know. of the uh, growing, I think, um, areas where it's not just about downtown. Though I mean, there's so many different offshoots of downtown, and not just in the suburbia. And I know that I know you talked, the, and I and uh, I know you talked with John Hockenberry, where he spoke of the gentrification of a city—the process of, of course, rebuilding a deteriorating area. Um, where the middle class is displacing poor residents, and what I'm curious, because I know you cover different cities around the country, and especially even Denver with their new marijuana yeah. dispensaries, and how it's creating different industries. Do you see that happening in Detroit? That where the middle class has to really come back into the city, they have to, they have to bring the restaurants, they have to want to go down to the symphonies in order for that kind of urban area to uh, basically. To, to come up,
1: yeah. You know, I mean, they are the, the thing is, is that they're coming into the city and then they're leaving. You know, they'll come in to see the symphony and then they get right back in their cars and go out. Um, so that that's got to change. Um, I, I mean, I think you know, if the one thing that comes out of the recession, there's the possibility here that the suburbs and the city will will stop warring with one another. I mean, think how fantastic that would be if that was a byproduct of this recession, Um, not to downplay, you know, how much people have suffered. I think there is a real danger that you could have gentrification. Um, But... You know, if that's the problem that we're dealing with, that's a pretty nice problem to have. (laughs) You know, I mean, that there could be way worse things than to have middle-class people moving. There's already large, strong middle-class communities in Detroit. I don't want to say that there aren't. But in the areas that you're talking about, which are the challenged areas, if the problem is that we have middle and upper-class people moving back into those areas and we have to find ways to preserve... Uh, the lower-income housing as well, well, heck, you know, that's a pretty good problem.
0: You know, I'm, we're talking with uh, Celeste Headley, one of the uh, top radio broadcasters in this country and working for public radio. I'm wondering how racism and, and dealing with these suburbs and how it deals with Detroit plays a role in, quite frankly, coming back with Detroit. And I've read a bunch. I've read some of the things that you've written, and I really like the way you write. You have a clisp crisp, clean, and honest way of writing. And I read in one of your blogs, um, you talk about the whites are resentful and blacks need to care. And I wonder if I could just read a little uh, piece of that and talk to you about it. I agree that younger men are not racist in the way their fathers and grandfathers have been. But it's troubling that they can't see the structure of our society and all the benefits they enjoy simply because they were born with light skin. Those advantages were blatant during the Jim Crow days and now they're subtle and easy to miss and probably more dangerous. If white guys can't see the preferential treatment they enjoy and can't understand their own dominance, then they of course will get angry and they're asked, and when they're asked, Has to sacrifice for benefit of blacks, even women, just as most of any issue associated with race. People are making decisions based on their emotion instead of fact-based knowledge. And then you brought the main point, which I think is important. I think some members of the African-American community are making the situation worse. Too many blacks are trying to establish their own identity. And what it makes me think about is, is racism still a part of Detroit and the problems where the, the white man or woman is uh, is treating it differently than the black man, and potentially uh, causing still a demise of Detroit.
1: You know, you know, it's a truism that everything's about race in Detroit. Um, I, I never would have thought that was true before I came here, but s- sadly, it is. Um, and you know, it, it's an odd thing to say, but racism isn't a, a racial problem. Th- this crosses both color lines, all color lines. And at this point, both sides are, are equally at fault. Um, we're not understanding one another, and we're getting very emotional and frustrated about certain things, but not communicating. And I think also there's there's a certain to a certain extent we're not giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Um, which at some point we just have to stop and, and cool down and, and really listen to what the other person is saying and ask ourselves for just a moment, is it possible that what this other person is saying, is, as, as odious as it sounds to me, is coming from a place other than hate? Um, sometimes that's not the case, but sometimes it is. And until Detroit can start talking to one another with some amount of understanding and respect, even for hateful attitudes, we're, we're not gonna get past this. I mean, look how long race has crippled us and is still crippling us. Yes, race is is definitely still taking its pound of flesh out of Detroit, and it's not just the city of Detroit. It's the suburbs also, and I try to explain this to people in the suburbs all the time. You can tell me that you live in Birmingham and not Detroit, but if I'm from L.A., you live in Detroit. It's right. all Detroit.
0: Right. And, it's not you
1: know, Ghost Point Shores. It's Detroit as far as the rest of the world is concerned. You know, you guys, everyone's going to either rise together or fall together, and you guys got to, we all have to find a way to understand one another and listen.
0: We're talking with Celeste Headley, co-host of Public Radio's Internationals, The Takeaway, heard weekly on Radio station nationwide. I want to turn to public radio for a minute because I really, I'm a lifelong listener to public radio and I really like your show, The Takeaway, but I'm curious about the response traditional public radio listeners have had to The Takeaway program. If it, uh, really, because it's really not the magazine approach to the morning show like, uh, morning edition. And I'm wondering yeah, sure. <laughs> how, how you and, and co-host John Hockenberry see yourself as news people and how you present the daily news
1: you know when i wasn't there when the takeaway was formed but one of the reasons i loved it so much uh was that it is a new approach for public radio listeners especially to the morning news um, we are all live and we are extremely nimble we can respond to breaking news very very quickly and and we can uh be a lot more in the moment but the other thing and this is one of the things i think that has really you know the takeaway is very popular in detroit among the listeners at wdet um and I think here's one of the things that's really captured, especially the people who listen to WDET, which is the interactivity. You know, the way that the, the takeaway is structured, we, not, we don't just say call in and, and one point in the week we'll feature the lecture, the letters that we got that we like. We, we immediately play back people's responses, and if it's, if it's interesting, as they usually are, we'll then go to the guest and say, you know, so-and-so in Detroit said... This. What do you have to say about that? And we'll, we'll ask them to respond so that our listeners actually become part of the program in a really substantive and constructive way. And, you know, what's surprising about it for any radio person who's taken calls is that 99% of the, the comments and calls that we get are articulate and well-thought-out, and they're not in any way, shape, or form extreme or explosive. And that's kind of amazing.
0: It's a real live show. I love that.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's totally new to public radio. And I think people at at first had a hard time with it. They're used to kind of a slower pace with Morning Edition. Um, But what I've heard more than anything else is, you know, once I started listening to The Takeaway, you know, going back to listening to the traditional magazine shows, seemed slow,
0: You you recently interviewed uh, Senator Carl Levin about the uh, Goldman Sachs, and I really found it interesting. And there he gave explanations um, about what was going on at Capitol Hill. And what I was wondering about is if you were a little annoyed, because I quite frankly was a little annoyed, but if you were a little annoyed that the senator would just not admit that there was a difference between an illegal act and the unethical one that they were dealing with up on Capitol Hill.
1: Right. Although he did finally say, look, if it's not illegal, it ought to be, um, which I found to be very telling. Because, I mean, remember, this is going on at the same time that they're debating financial reform and the financial overhaul bill, and and Carl Levin is clearly going to be a strong voice in that entire debate. Um, I think, you know, I don't know if you watched C-SPAN and all those hearings and Carl Levin constantly reading these emails back. To a certain extent, that was a little bit cathartic for me, Um I totally agree that the 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 Congress, to some extent, is like eschewing responsibility as, "Oh, you guys did all these horrible things, and we didn't know anything about it, and we had no control." You know, come on,
0: (laughs) that's that's a little ridiculous. But when you interview powerful people like that, and obviously they have a lot of influence, is it sometimes hard to get? Them to admit their agenda, or at least, like, let's say you had a good point and he might brush it aside. Do you get frustrated with a with a guest like that?
1: We do, but you know the great thing about the takeaway is, um, is that we can then come back and go, "Look, you're completely missing my point." And you right. know, there was one point at which we were dis- we were debating healthcare, and we had two congressmen on a Democrat and a Republican, and at the very top, I said, "You know what? Here's the deal. I don't want to hear anything." About anything that you don't agree with, I don't want you are not allowed to say anything about a provision you don't like. The only thing we're discussing today is provisions in the health care bill that you support, and that's it. And there was complete
0: silence <laughs>
1: for like ten seconds. Um, so we get to do those kind of things because of the the environment and the the format of the takeaway. That's what we're able to do. Um, in a recent uh, focus group they had in Detroit one of the young people who listened said the takeaway is straight up gangsta <laughs> <laughs> because you know we're allowed to do stuff like that we're allowed to stop and say whoa uh uh-uh, uh that is not going to fly you just said on this program last week something totally different so that's kind of you know again cathartic for a journalist to finally be able to be in a for- forum where you can say no stop
0: well, we want to thank, uh, thank my guest, Celeste Headley, for really taking time with us this morning, sharing some good insight into how Detroit is, uh, viewed nationally and also with public radio, which I life in general. Celeste, thank you very much. I hope you'll come visit us and visit the program again.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Take care. You too. One of the, uh, things about public radio, whether you like public radio or whether you think it is a, uh, uh, it is too liberal, Whether you think it's a situation where you have a a process of listening to both public radio and to regular radio. The thing about public radio it does is it gives the people an opportunity many times, just like Celeste was saying, to... Converse and to talk about the things that many times they it's unedited then they come into that takeaway show like she was saying and i I really like that about public radio you know sometimes it's a little too liberal for me, other times it's you know it's a, a little boring, but most of the time it's it's intuitive. And it really makes you think about some things that quite frankly you at the uh, water cooler weren 't necessarily thinking about just talking about the uh the latest uh, Dancing with the stars show that you might be listening to on uh an e t tonight so uh one of one of the things I want you to consider doing is obviously uh when you listen to public radio, think about how it affects your life and uh maybe it sparks a different idea for you to uh, think about. If you want to be a part of the show, it's uh, 248-851-1270. This is Weinberg on the Law, WXYT. Have you or a loved one been arrested or charged with a crime? Do you want to stay out of jail and try to keep your record clean? Then you need the attorneys from Weinberg Law at 1-800-7100-LAW. And if you call right now, they can qualify you for a payment plan designed just for you. That's right, an affordable top criminal law firm. Call 1-800-7100-LAW. Stay out of jail, keep your record clean, and qualify for payment plans. Call now, one 800 710 529 That's one 800 7100 7100 Law.